worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and glory and honor and blessing. The words of Revelation 5, verse number 12. And we just now sang a song, of course, about the Lamb of God and how that you and I are blessed to be able to, of course, appreciate an activity in relation to that as well. We come this evening to part two in a, a brief series of lessons, really touching some financial advice from the world's richest man. I believe I could fairly say that if you look at the wealth that Solomon had at his access in that day, even compared to those of our day today, as wealthy as they may be, Solomon's would certainly rank right there with it. And yet he was inspired. And thus, when we give thought to books like Proverbs or books like Ecclesiastes, he can share with us not only financial wisdom and insight, but of course from the perspective of being inspired as well. This opening slide is one in which we rehearse very briefly, admittedly, some of those lessons that we saw last time and prepare ourselves to extend those by the lesson that we shall consider this evening. We have been looking at the book of Proverbs and reminding ourselves about financial insight, wisdom, if you please. Surely, as you look at that particular slide, none of us need reminding that finances are one of the most vital, I suppose, parts of our life. Certainly we need money to carry out the necessary matters in our life, but the Bible is so clear that our life is not the money. That money is only an asset. It's only something that we're blessed to be able to be a steward of. And for that reason, lesson one was, God is the owner of all of it. It isn't you and it isn't I. It's God. He's the owner. But in addition to that, isn't it true that we appreciated that riches without character, riches without integrity, is worse than being in poverty, at least according to the Bible? And thus, any, financial, any finances that we have, we certainly want to make sure that we invoke good character and biblical and godly integrity with it. That third lesson had to do with greed. It's a sin. The Bible is very clear about that. With that in mind, the last two lessons were quickly these. God seemingly looks very harshly upon those who oppress the poor in light of the riches that, that those that are rich may well have, using it as a tool, as an advantage to in fact obstruct what's right for the poor. And finally, that last lesson we considered last, last time was the thrust of our labor. Although God may well bless us with a lot of financial business and monies, the reason we work must never be simply to gain those riches. For that reason, what about some more lessons tonight? I hope you've kept your Bible open to the book of Proverbs. We'll be devoting almost all of our lesson to that book tonight, selecting a few particular passages and looking at some features about the Bible's wisdom concerning money, concerning finances. The first one is really something we mentioned in passing last time. But it seemingly is so often mentioned, I thought it was worthwhile to at least invest some more thoughts relative to it. And that is this one. If one wishes to be financially well off, be prepared to work. As far as the Bible invests it and as far as it discusses it, the blessedness of income is attached primarily to two things. Either you work for it or you inherit it. There's no other options. Gambling is a sin, so that's not an option. 
And yet there's so many today who choose to use that approach. I will invest a little with the intent of a large amount of income on my part. The Bible doesn't endorse that anywhere. But yet when you and I do think about being ready to work for it, we understand, do we not, that that usually is the way the Bible describes one's income. Look at some of these particulars. In Proverbs chapter 10, verse number 4, the following statement is rather dramatically presented. He becometh poor that dealeth with a slack hand, but the hand of the diligent maketh rich. That person who is a slacker, he's lazy. He simply refuses to work, though he has the capability to do it. The Bible says that kind of thing is not looked upon favorably by God. There it says that slack hand is going to ultimately lead to poverty. Now, by and large, we've reached a time in our society when the government will utilize programs to prop up those that at times are just plain lazy. Now, they're going to have to answer to God for this. But you'll notice another passage is Proverbs 20, verse 13, which later in the same book puts it in this language. Chapter 20, verse 13. Love not sleep, lest thou come to poverty. Open thine eyes, and thou shalt be satisfied with bread. As wonderful as sleep is, and we do appreciate what a tremendous blessing God has vouchsafed to us that we can provide the necessary rest and the other benefits to the body with sleep. We're told here, don't love it so much that you spend your time, too much time sleeping, and not appropriately investing in the labor, the diligence, the industriousness, and the work that would be that which is the will of God. Maybe in light of all those things, the Bible often highlights, doesn't it, the value that's attached to work. There are some who, at least in our day, on occasion will misspeak concerning this. They often portray work as a punishment due to Adam and Eve's sin in Eden. That isn't so. Adam and Eve were given work before they sinned in Eden. They were told expressly in Genesis 2.15 to dress and to keep the garden. We don't know how many acres the garden was, but to dress it and to keep it almost certainly was a full-time employment. And needless to say, as that work was given to them, God did have more to say after they did sin. There, God expressly told Adam, "...in the sweat of your face you'll eat bread." Because this earth that is going to be cursed now, it'll bring forth thorns and thistles. It will easily bring forth what is really not much good to you for eat. You'll have to, in fact, invest toil and labor for it to bring forth what is profitable for you. And that sentence, that idea, has been something we've understood so well. The nature then of that work perhaps echoes so powerfully in Genesis 9 verse 4, or rather John 9 verse 4. Jesus admonished those of that day, and you and I as well, to work while it's day, for the night cometh when no man can work. In a society, of course, that is agricultural in character, surely the daylight hours are so needful for understanding, and at night in that day, you just wasn't able to work very much. Today, you and I have lights and access, and we're able to do more work in the evening hours. But the premise is still there. The needfulness of appropriate and well-directed labor. 
If you and I are going to be well off and not in the midst of poverty, we should expect to have to work for it. One last thing on that slide. How frequently the Bible revisits that discussion of the slothful, those that would choose to be lazy, those that can work but choose not to. How often does the Bible describe them and portray a very dark picture for them? In Proverbs chapter 6, we're told to be like the ant, who in fact is so busy, so active in preparation for the cooler winter times that are ahead. And so it is that you and I still make appropriate provision and strive to do that with well-directed labor. It might well be that that sixth lesson points us to a seventh one. The seventh lesson is another strong word of wisdom. Maybe your parents or maybe some other kind friend shared this with you. Do not live above your means. Here are some good observations, some examples on that slide. We know very well that life will offer a host of opportunities, in fact, a multitude of them. And they will be in gradations of financial investment. I've just chosen to list a couple. We could extend that list many times over. As far as the dishes one may utilize in one's kitchen, you can go and buy a set at Walmart or other places, and quite likely they'll be well-sufficient, and they won't cost that much. If one wished, you could probably spend two or $3,000 for a single plate. This finely and ornately organized china that is incredibly decorative and also incredibly expensive. And to buy a set of that perhaps would cost as much as a whole house for some of you and I, at least in our understanding. Now there again, we just have to appreciate the Bible's advice to not live above your means. Look at a car. One could go and perhaps purchase a nicely utilized car. It could even be a brand new one. It might well be a Toyota, a Honda, a Ford, or a Chevrolet. But you could go and price a Mercedes-Benz. It probably would cost five or six times that much. In Proverbs 21, verse number 4, on that particular slide, I'm sorry, verse 17, the following advice is given to us, and it was the lesson text for the evening. He that loveth pleasure shall be a poor man. He that loveth wine and oil shall not be rich. The wicked shall be a ransom for the righteous, and the transgressor for the upright. Now maybe that opening verse sounds a bit perplexing. Let's step through it a bit more carefully. He that loveth pleasure shall be a poor man. Is God saying it's wrong? to be a person who enjoys pleasure? Is it wrong to be an individual who is content and satisfied with his arena in life, considering it pleasurable? Not at all. In fact, in Hebrew poetry, the latter part of that verse, in fact, amplifies the idea in this way. He that loveth wine and oil. In that ancient day, these were two elements that were often indicative of the upper echelon in life. Most people couldn't afford much relative to a large amount, if you please, or a large investment concerning oil, as well as, for that matter, even of wine. And so that person who loved this to the point that there was an incredible intensity toward the acquiring of it, they would invest so much to have it. 
and in so doing would spend those matters needful really for other arenas in life. He that loveth wine and oil shall not be rich. You'll notice on this slide then, the encouragement of the Bible to not live above one's means. All of us then should be careful to appreciate what monies we have, what assets are ours, and to not live above that. To not spend frivolously on things that we do not need. Because we can purchase other things that will do just as good a job for so much less. Perhaps you've heard of that old saying. I suppose it's a very familiar one to us, but it goes something like this. If your outgo exceeds your income, then your upkeep will be your downfall. May I say that again? If your outgo exceeds your income, then your upkeep will be your downfall. Now, although that's worded, of course, in a way indicative of modern language, this principle at least, the concept is even before us in Proverbs 21, 17. You'll notice near the bottom of that slide that when you and I then try to live above our means to keep up with the neighbors or to keep up with others, they've built a new garage and so we need one. They've bought a new car and so we'll try to get one. We soon may find ourselves spending more money than we have and that may bring a whole host of problems. This seventh lesson about living within our means points the direction really to an eighth one as well, also drawn from the book of Proverbs. This time, if I could already point you to Proverbs 21, verse number 5. While we're probably on that page in our Bible already, let's read that particular verse, and then we will invest a few considerations relative to it. The thoughts of the diligent tend only to plenteousness, but of every one that is hasty, only to want. You'll notice hastiness is associated with, and in fact, rather strongly linked with, being in want. You'll notice on this slide, I've asked you to at least be mindful of this. The Hebrew word that is there utilized for hasty does touch upon making a rash decision. To in fact make a very hasty decision likely in regard to a very major matter in life. All of us have known and have experienced probably those moments in life when a major decision was at hand. It could well be the Bible is here reminding us that great consequences and perhaps even financial ones may well come about as a result of a very quick decision. It may well be far better to think carefully, to look at the impact of this decision on one's finances, upon one's other demands in life, upon the characteristic expectations that might come with it. Because ultimately, it might mean a great deal about our finances. The Bible would encourage us to be very careful when it comes to the major decisions of life. In fact, should we not pray about them? Pray for God's wisdom and His insight to be with us so that whatever this decision is, that as our approach to it will be such that God will be glorified and that our place in it will never lead us aside from where we should be. Didn't Jesus put it like this in Matthew chapter 6? In that prayer we often call the model prayer, do you recall how it ended? Among the things He mentioned, give us this day our daily bread. Every day. 
may we appreciate even in the midst of these great decisions the understanding that how desperately we need the things that we do to glorify God. And as he made mention at the end of that prayer, he asserted that the evil one, which of course is the devil, should be such that he's ever before us, and may we be mindful of that fact. Have you known of instances when some great enterprise or opportunity was made available to an individual and that individual stepped right into it with excitement, only to find at some time shortly thereafter that the other demands and the other things that associated to it crushed this person, bringing demands beyond his or her ability to easily handle. May we pray earnestly along the line of not being hasty. There at the bottom of that slide, I've asked you to notice in the original language, there's an adverb, surely, that appears twice in this verse. As if there's a large amount of certainty, or may I say assurance, connected to the idea. May you and I not be too hasty when it comes to major decisions and especially financial, financially related ones. This eighth lesson has been one that reminds us not only about not living above our means, but now as we've asserted, to be very mindful or at least very careful. But the Bible has more to say than even these. This one, being wasteful. To be wasteful. I've entitled it like this. God has made available to you and to me resources. Those certainly can be financial, but may well include many other things. And the Bible would encourage us not to be wasteful relative to those things. Let's build that point, and as we do so, Proverbs 18.9 will be one of the first places we'll encamp. Proverbs 18, verse number 9. He also that is slothful in his work is brother to him that is a great waster. Don't you find that wording very interesting? A great waster. And here the Word of God testifies that person is no better off than the one we've already studied, mentioned early in the verse, as the lazy man. Now the lazy man we learned earlier is going to come to poverty. He's going to come to want. And now here the Bible says the person who's a waster is kin to the lazy man. They're both, you see, going to be in very dire circumstances in that. This one is wasting the resources made available. As far as this discussion, this business of being a waster, you'll notice that another way in which that same word seemingly appears frequently in the Bible is the one who destroys. Picture it this way. God has given to this individual perhaps a fair amount of resources, and in his wastefulness of them, he is destroying the opportunity. He is destroying the implication of good that those things had. They could have been used for profitability. They could have been used to bring about many blessings, no doubt. And the person chose to waste them. Another word that frequently you and I use relative to this is prodigal. Now I know you probably have already thought about the prodigal son of Luke 15. Here was a young man who went to his dad and said, Give me my inheritance. We don't know how much that was it would appear to have been sizable. At the very least, it sustained him for a while in the far country. Did you notice? There came a time, though, when all of it was gone. 
He had wasted it. And later on, the elder brother said, Look at what this your son has done. He has wasted it in riotous living. Apparently, that elder brother had suspected or else he knew that the way in which the younger brother had spent it was wasting it. How tragic and how sad that what could have no doubt been so much dutifully used was wasted that way. Today, might you and I appreciate and not be an individual who wastes what he's been given. I say it that way because look at the New Testament examples of this and look at the ways in which some of these ideas are shown to us. I've mentioned that Luke 15 passage, but isn't it interesting what Jesus did when He fed the 5,000? Haven't you often been amazed that here the Lord used five loaves and two fishes to feed 5,000 men, not counting the children and women? And when it was over, what took place? He took up 12 baskets of fragments. It might well be we've often wondered what happened to the fragments. They surely were gathered for a reason. Were they given to the poor? Were they given to family members? We don't know. The text does not say. But at the very least, the Lord apparently was insistent enough that the fragments weren't wasted. They at least were gathered. Maybe that's enough to teach us that you and I too can be mindful of even the bounty we've been given and the abundance of it to at least appreciate and not be a waster of that which we've been given. One by one, all of these lessons, all these financial things as, they, as the Bible has presented them, are such that they've been in the writings of Solomon. Remembering again how wealthy he was. Do you suppose he had regulations or statutes that he encouraged his servants to not be wasteful? Do you suppose he encouraged them in light of being good stewards of that which they had been given? Again, it just causes one to wonder, because especially in Ecclesiastes 2, it seems as if some of the ideas we see here he felt sure were needful for the proper regarding of a kingdom. I would say at this point that you and I should be mindful of our country. God has given our country riches, it would seem, unparalleled by any nation in the history of this planet. And yet, as we think about it on occasion, it would so grandly appear how wasteful we seemingly can be that those who have decisions with regard to the finances of our land choose to direct things in such a wasteful way on occasion. How tragic and how terribly, terribly sad. Maybe it is in light of all of that, we're making some personal applications in those of our family. The next lesson, lesson number 10 in this particular list, is such that it brings us pretty close to the end of our lesson tonight. The last two will simply be these. Lesson number 10. We just now mentioned about not being a waster, but the other side of that coin is to be mindful of the need to take care of what one does have. The Bible also would say this, and maybe you and I have often thought about it, but we're going to begin in Proverbs 24, verses 3 and following. Proverbs 24, verse number 3. Through wisdom is an house builded, and by understanding it is established. And by knowledge shall the chambers be filled with all precious and pleasant riches. A wise man is strong, yea, a man of knowledge increaseth strength. 
For by wise counsel thou shalt make thy war, and in multitude of counselors there is safety. Wisdom is too high for a fool. He openeth not his mouth in the gate. He that deviseth to do evil shall be called a mischievous person. The thought of foolishness is sin, and the scorner is an abomination to men. If thou faint in the day of adversity, thy strength is small. If thou forbear to deliver them that are drawn unto death and those that are ready to be slain, if thou sayest, Behold, we knew it not, doth not he that pondereth the heart consider it? And he that keepeth thy soul, doth he not know it? And shall not he render to every man according to his works? My son, eat thou honey, because it is good, and the honeycomb which is sweet to thy taste, so shall the knowledge of wisdom be unto thy soul. When thou hast found it, then there shall be a reward, and thy expectation shall not be cut off. Let's pause there. So far we have seen a set of verses touching the particular matter that really points us to its greater development much later in the chapter. Wisdom has encouraged us to be mindful of the bounty of blessing. And as we've read all of that, look at the dramatic statement in verse 30. I went by the field of the slothful, and by the vineyard of the man void of understanding. The writer says, I walked beside the field of a man void of understanding. What did you see? Verse 31. Lo, it was all grown over with thorns, and nettles had covered the face thereof, and the stone wall thereof was broken down. Then I saw and considered it well, I looked upon it and received instruction. As this person walked beside the field, its wall was broken down, the field hadn't been tended, nothing had been taken care of, it was grown over with thorns and nettles. And the person who looked at it said, I learned a lesson out of this. What did you learn? Verse 33. Yet a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep. So shall thy poverty come as one that uh, traveleth, and thy want as an armed man. This person didn't look after what he'd been given. He had a field, he had a wall around it, but he overlooked it. His laziness or otherwise led him to not tend to what he had. And this is what became of it. You and I learn in that we must be mindful and take care of what we've been given so that it will last. We won't have to buy another to replace it so soon. I've tried to paint that statement this way. To look after what we have, we know that our house, for instance, our car, we'll have to invest some things to maintain it, to look after it, to look well to it. Now, you and I know they didn't have cars in Bible times. Why, there is no verse that directly says that. But something that is as close as we can get in the Bible is found in Proverbs 27, verse 23. Listen to the way this is stated. Chapter 27 Verse 23, Be thou diligent to know the state of thy flocks, and look well to thy herds. That ancient farmer here, the Bible said, you take the investment to look well after your flock, and you know the state of them. You take care of them, because they will tend to and result in the well-being of you and your family. Today, of course, many things like that would be examples for you and me to look after what we've been given. 
taking care of it so that it shall be the proper blessing and last us as would be appropriate for it. And finally tonight, lesson number 11. One statement about these assets we've mentioned that perhaps should not go unnoticed. It is one that you can find easily with me as we look at Ecclesiastes 5, again from the writing of Solomon. But the basic idea is going to be this. It has to do with one of the first things I've asked you to notice. Our world, it seemingly, is so often directed in a materialistic way, acquiring more and more, having more and more things, more and more possessions. In light of the principles we've learned tonight, there should be one more thing quickly added to that list. If we're going to take care of these things, and the more things we have, the more investment of money and time it'll take to maintain them. The more investment of our energy, our effort, it will require to upkeep them. Ecclesiastes 5 verse 11 will say that like this. When goods increase, they are increased that eat them. And what good is there to the owners thereof, saving the beholding of them with their eyes? To say that slightly differently, the more things we have, then the more opportunity for others to find a way to take a piece of it. The more opportunities that others will have to make inroads to it and for us, the more investment it should be to tend to it, to sustain it, and to maintain it. All of these principles, thus, are vital lessons, and they're good for us to keep in mind. They'll help us to be wise. They'll help us to be financially insightful. As we close that slide, let me invite you again to consider Solomon. He didn't always have to think much about money. He had enough money to buy whatever he wanted, and in fact, as much of it as he wanted. But nonetheless, by inspiration, he encourages all of us who don't have the wealth he had, to nonetheless be wise. And if we are so, we have been promised by God that we'll have sufficient. We will have enough. These lessons so far are through 11 of them. One more lesson, at least in this immediate series, and then one final lesson beyond that in making direct applications to us. But for right now, let's close this lesson with this statement of conclusion. Finances are very important. God would wish us to be wise concerning them. And tonight, as we have now tallied 11 total lessons that Proverbs and Ecclesiastes have shared with us, they'll help us be individuals who, quite frankly, can be honoring to God with things we've got. In that light, we know currently in our land there's a tremendous debt problem. There are people who have so much debt that realistically it may take decades to pay it off because often they have failed to understand some of the lessons that the Bible has so quickly shared. Not living above our means, being dutiful with respect to what we have, not being wasteful of the blessings we have been given, just to name a few. And sometimes those simple ideas can be so meaningful practically and financially in our life. I hope that tonight, as you and I take these things to heart, that we'll even be stronger in financial wisdom, 
I might point out that there are college-level classes where some of the very things the Bible has had within it now for centuries are the very things implanted in the hearts and minds of students. It's plain old simple biblical advice. I hope we've been encouraged that the Bible is needful. It's an inspired book, and it will never cease to be important. Jesus said it like this in Matthew 24, verse 35. He said, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. Tonight, if anyone there is in this assembly who might wish to make a public response to the gospel's call of invitation, it'd be our delight to assist you, to help you. If we could study with you, that would be a very honorable thing. Our elders would be quick. They would want you to know if they can offer any advice financially and say in your life or to help you, they'd be honored to study with you, to help set before you some matters that might make a great difference in your financial well-being and in your peace of mind. Tonight, if we could be of help in these ways or any others, we would encourage you and invite you to come while together we stand and while we sing.